0: I'd like to let you know that Aussie Med Ed is sponsored by OPC Health, an Australian supplier of prosthetics, orthotics, clinic equipment, compression garments, rehabilitation devices for doctors, physiotherapists, orthotists, podiatrists and hand therapists. If you'd like to know what OPC Health offers, visit opchealth.com.au and view their range online. G'day and welcome to the Aussie Med Ed, the Australian medical education podcast, where we get to interview specialists in a variety of medical areas asking their opinion on their certain conditions, obtaining their insight into how they diagnose and treat that condition. In these COVID times, it's a way of replacing a relaxed discussion around the hospital by allowing the listener to put forward questions to be answered and addressed on their behalf. I hope you enjoy the whole program, and welcome once again to Aussie Meded. And in this edition, we get to speak to Dr. Dan Spurnat, a urological surgeon operating in South Australia and senior lecturer at the University of Adelaide. He's going to give us his approach to the most common cancer affecting men in general, prostate cancer, both screening options and treatment after its diagnosis. Not only will this information be useful for the general practitioner seeing a patient on a regular basis, but also for the medical student revising for their exams or preparing for their OSCE examination. I'm Gavin Nyman, a North Peak excursion based in Adelaide, in South Australia, and I'm the host of this podcast. I'd like to begin this podcast by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the land which this podcast has been produced, and pay my respects to the elders both past and present. Now it gives me great pleasure to introduce Dr. Dan Spurnett. a urological surgeon operating at the Queen Elizabeth Hospital and also in private in South Australia. He's the past chair of the South Australian section of the Urological Society of Australia and New Zealand. He's also a member of the American Urological Association and the European Association of Urology. He's a senior lecturer in surgery at the University of Adelaide and a very good colleague of mine. Welcome Dr. Dan Spurnett. Thanks very much for being available today, Dan, to talk about prostate cancer. I know that as a urologist specialising in oncological treatment, I know that this is an area of your special interest. I'd First of all, start off by asking, is the most common cancer in men? And what sort of population does it affect? What's the incidence? And uh, how do they usually present?
1: Oh, thanks for having me, Gav. Um, look, prostate cancer is a very, very common disease, as you've said. And uh, when we look at the original autopsy studies uh, that were conducted, the incidence in a 50-year-old man was around 40%, and the incidence in an 80-year-old man was about 80%. They're probably a little bit high in the modern era, um, and we're probably realistically looking at a you know 25-30% lifetime risk of prostate cancer. Um, consequently, what we recommend for all men who are aged 50 and well, between 50 and 80, um, that are going to live. 10 years or more, and interested in proactive healthcare, is actually to undergo prostate cancer screening. Uh, the way this is done in primary practice is to actually just do a PSA, which is the prostate-specific antigen. It's a one-off blood test, and then compare that to the median age value, so what the essentially what the average is for a man in that age group. The requirement to do a prostate examination is no longer... Uh, a required part of the uh, of the screening process in uh, for general practitioners and for primary care physicians, and, and the reason for this is that essentially it was seen as a barrier for some people to actually doing prostate cancer screening. So they didn't want to do the prostate exam. And there was a a fear that uh, maybe some people wouldn't know exactly what they were feeling, and also it is quite a, a blunt test. The realistically you can only feel part of the prostate that's right next to the rectum. You can't feel the whole anterior zone. So what we have done is we've recommended that patients have a, a PSA once a year and uh, and should this be elevated, then referral to a, a urologist would be the most
0: appropriate thing. So is that for everyone in that age group between 50 to 80 or there? so everyone should have one, a PSA every year?
1: Well, there are high-risk patients. So patients who are... Uh, who have a first-degree relative, so a brother, an uncle, a father, um, with prostate cancer that was diagnosed before the age of 65, um, those patients should have their testing starting at 45. And if you've got two first-degree relatives in that group, then you should have your prostate cancer screening starting at 40. Um, I've certainly diagnosed a man in his mid-30s with uh, prostate cancer because he was very concerned. Um, he had, Every male in his family had, had prostate cancer. So... Uh, it, it certainly is a disease which has a genetic link.
0: Are there any other associations with it as well?
1: So there are other high risk or, or groups that are at higher risk. So when we look at the genetic basis, certain races have a higher risk than others. Um, interestingly, um, African men have a higher risk than Caucasian men, and Caucasian men have a higher risk than Asian men. The other fascinating part is when they did epidemiological studies and took uh, African, or in this case, Japanese men, and put them in America, so very similar to Australia, uh, the, the incidence of prostate cancer increased further. And we think this has got to do with the saturated fats in the diet because there have been other studies linking either a Mediterranean or an Asian diet with a lower incidence of prostate cancer.
0: Okay. Um, what about those patients that don't go for screening and might present with some symptoms? What symptoms will they actually present with? What are the most common presentations?
1: Well this is this is one of the uh, the big issues with prostate cancer is that unfortunately a lot of the time when prostate cancer presents it can present too late. So this is why we want to do screening. It can present with bony metastases or pathological fractures. Alternatively it can present quite innocuously with lower urinary tract symptoms such as poor flow, urinary frequency, urinary urgency uh as there is a degree of outflow obstruction. And I guess playing into this is that benign prostatic hyperplasia or BPH is also very, very common uh, in men of the same age group. So again, you're sort of looking at a 40% incidence at the age of uh, 50. So you've got to be very careful not to just assume that these men with lower urinary tract symptoms have BPH. They may actually have prostate cancer and therefore every man who comes with lower urinary tract symptoms should be assessed for the possibility of prostate cancer.
0: And what about the uh, scenario where someone might be scared that they've got urinary symptoms, um, but the PSA is normal? Is there any chance of getting prostate cancer with a normal PSA?
1: Unfortunately, there is. And this is where PSA as a test is really, really difficult. Unfortunately, PSA does change day to day. If you or I had our PSA done this morning and this afternoon, it's always slightly different. And that's why what we've done is we've developed several PSA derivatives to try and make it more sensitive and more specific for prostate cancer. Um, The most commonly used one at the moment is the median age value. And a good rule of thumb is that the median value for a man in his 40s is approximately 0.5. For a man in his 50s is 1. For a man in his 60s is 2. For a man in his 70s is 3. And for a man in his 80s is 4. So if you Take a man in his forties, and he's got a PSA, which would be the median in his fifties. His risk of prostate cancer works out at approximately twenty-five percent, and it goes, uh, it, it continues to follow that. So if every if everyone moves up one age group, um, that's when I'd certainly be referring them. the The other issue is that, and this is where the prostate exam is useful for urologists. Is that occasionally the very nasty, very aggressive prostate cancers, the poorly differentiated ones, uh, don't actually secrete PSA? Uh, and this simply is because the cells are so atypical and so bizarre, they no longer represent or even look like prostate cells, and consequently, they, uh, they don't secrete any of the hormone.
0: Is there any indication for doing a biopsy or doing further investigations on a patient with prostate symptoms? Uh, and no urinary frequency issues, but with a normal normal PSA for their median for their mean age, the median value. I'd like to let you know that Aussie MedEd is supported by HealthShare. HealthShare is a digital health company that provides solutions for patients, GPs, and specialists across Australia. Two of HealthShare's products are Better Consult, a pre-consultation questionnaire that allows GPs to know a patient's agenda before the consult begins. As well as health shares specialist referrals directory, a specialist allied health directory helping GPs find the right specialist.
1: So I, I don't. So what I'd recommend is that if men have a normal prostate examination and normal PSA, then they're at low risk of prostate cancer.
0: And if they're coping with those symptoms, is there any indication for treatment at all in that scenario?
1: Well, the, the treatment would be for the symptoms, which could be either. Uh, dietary and lifestyle factors um, such as reducing caffeine so that they're not going to the toilet so frequently. Um, it could be medical therapy such as alpha blockers to release the outflow obstruction, so reduce the uh, the tone of the smooth muscle in the prostate, reducing back pressure, helping them urinate more easily. Um, or it could be surgery. And the disobstructive surgery, uh, there are multiple different types. The TURP is a classic and there are variations on that. And There are now new, more minimally invasive approaches. The, the principle of all these techniques is to reduce the back pressure on the bladder, improve the flow and allow the patient to urinate more easily. The reason it's so important to ensure that these patients don't have prostate cancer is that obviously any delay in the diagnosis of prostate cancer will uh, therefore Delay treatment, worsening outcomes, and also, if if patients have disobstructive surgery, it actually makes the follow-up treatment for or the follow-up surgery for prostate cancer more difficult. Everything's uh, more stuck. Essentially, there's a lot a, a lot more fibrosis around the prostate if you are going to try and do a radical prostatectomy.
0: Okay, now you've talked about the more aggressive types of prostate cancer, but they they're all basically the same. I mean, obviously. When you talk about lung cancer, there's different types of lung cancer. Is prostate cancer exactly the same type of process or with just variations in aggressiveness?
1: Yeah. So the all prostate cancers are essentially adenocarcinomas. Uh, the issue is, depending on how un- or atypical the glands are, because prostate cancer is diagnosed on glandular architecture on the biopsy, the issue is that the, the more bizarre, the more atypical, the more aggressive the tumour is going to behave. So that's going to guide our management. Certainly that old adage that um, you die with prostate cancer, not of it, is a little bit of a therapy. And there certainly are some cancers that you can uh, certainly just surveil. Um, And these are the low-grade, low-risk ones. Uh, And we define these as a low-grade pattern on biopsy, so Gleason 6, and also involving less than three cores of the biopsy. We can take up to 30 cores these days um, when we do our standard template biopsies. And uh, less than 50% of that total core is involved in in tumour. So so patients who fulfil that criteria um, can be very safely monitored. Um, And the way we do that is with regular prostate examination, uh, regular PSA tests, and biopsies um, according to different time criteria. There are several different uh, criteria that people use to, to determine this. And that's certainly reasonable. If As the tumours become more aggressive, more radical treatment is required. And certainly then you'd be looking at either surgery in an appropriate man or radiotherapy. Certainly it depends on the Patient factors as well as the disease factors. And patient factors are things like obesity, overall health, any other uh, previous surgery, um, anything that could certainly make surgery or radiotherapy
0: contraindicated. A general healthy patient with appropriate diagnosis of prostate cancer, how would you approach them? You'd obviously consider a radical prostatectomy or?
1: Yeah, I think it's important to explain to patients that they do have choices and their choices would be either for surgery or for radiotherapy. Different things are going to suit different patients. Some patients, as we know as surgeons, are very, very keen to avoid surgery, and radiotherapy is a completely reasonable treatment option. If they've got a... uh, And and patients should certainly be uh, informed of these options. Alternatively, I think it's also very important to offer patients a surgical option, uh, and all patients should have this option presented to them as well. The surgical options really are open radical prostatectomy, laparoscopic radical prostatectomy, and robotic radical prostatectomy. Essentially, the difference in tech the, the difference in technique is obviously the open is the classical operation, whereas the other two are minimally invasive. Pure laparoscopic radical prostatectomy is only now performed by uh, uh, a very select group of urologists, and basically. Because the instruments are rigid, it's a very difficult, difficult operation. And that's why the robotic approach, which is essentially enhanced laparoscopy, where you have instruments with, that can articulate with more degrees of freedom than your wrist, has become the, uh, the most popular minimally invasive technique.
0: Now, when you hear about robotic surgery, uh, imagine a, a robot actually doing the surgery, but it's obviously a surgeon at the end of the uh, instruments controlling it. What actually is involved in robotic surgery on a prostate?
1: So robotic surgery um, uses the same style of laparoscopic ports that we'd use for other laparoscopy. They're designed specifically to clip onto a robot, and the robot can control four uh, separate ports. And then the instruments are fed into these ports by the assistant, um, as well as having two ports for themselves to pass things like sutures into the surgeon or into the operating field for the surgeon to use. Um, The surgeon themselves actually sits at a console. Most of the time it's in the same room, um, but technically it can be some distance away provided you've got suitable internet connection. Originally robots were designed for the military so that the patient could have the ports put in in the field and the surgeon could safely perform the Procedure offshore on a navy vessel, but uh, it hasn't hasn't really worked for that. It it is absolutely fabulous um, for other surgery, uh, and I'm certainly a very big proponent of it because I think it has patient benefits as well as surgeon benefits. But it is a um, it is a, a fascinating move where we're no longer touching the patient; we're sitting in the corner um, performing the work. It uh, it does feel quite surreal as the surgeon.
0: So the scrub nurse and the assistant are scrubbed up, but the surgeon is actually unscrubbed. That's
1: right. So uh, when we fir- first started doing them, we were doing them as two surgeon operations, and most of them we still do. Um, but we, we do also use nurse assistants. Um, so these are specially trained nurses who have undergone rigorous training in robotic surgery to be able to act as the surgical assistant.
0: That's amazing. And the the risks of surgery in themselves, and no matter what type of uh, whether it's open or laparoscopic or uh, robotic. There are certain risks associated with surgery. What would they, the main ones be?
1: Yeah, I always consent my patients for bleeding and infection. The risk, of a, the risk of bleeding with radical prostatectomy is significant because the dorsal venous complex running along the anterior surface of the prostate is, is a large vessel and can be difficult to control. Because of improved vision and the pneumoperitoneum with robotics, um, that risk is far lower than with traditional open surgery but it's still always there. The risk of infection is approximately 1% to 2%. There's always risk of incontinence and impotence. And essentially, this is because the prostate abuts the external urinary cincter. So you've got to be very careful, obviously, to take the entire prostate and not leave tumour behind, but also not go too far and and damage the external urinary cincter. The nerves for erections run along the sides of the prostate, and consequently, depending on patient factors such as how good their erections are before the surgery, tumour factors, so how aggressive the tumour is and whether or not you even want to try and spare the nerves, and also how easily you can dissect in the correct plane. It's a little bit like peeling one layer of the onion off from the inside. It determines how well you can spare those nerves. Because the prostate sits against the rectum, there is always a small risk of a rectal injury. And there's obviously where you stitch the bladder back onto the urethra, there's always a risk of an anastomotic stricture as well. Again, that's reduced with robotic surgery because of the continuous suture uh, used for the anastomosis. Whereas when we're doing them open, we have to generally put interrupted sutures in so you don't get the same watertight anastomosis you do with robotics.
0: Okay, the term radical would apply to the fact that you're actually taking the urethra with it as well or is that uh, just a, a plane of dissection out around the prostate?
1: The radical prostatectomy means that you're taking the entire prostate. Um, the prostate is the urethra in that portion but a simple prostatectomy is the operation that predated the TURP where we would actually nucleate the adenoma, the benign adenoma that was bulging into the urethra causing obstruction. And uh, certainly for very, very large prostates, is selectively still done. I've been involved in only a couple in my training and, uh, but never actually performed it as a, uh, as a consultant surgeon. It is an older, older style operation.
0: And following that, you'd follow it up with radiotherapy or would you do radiotherapy prior to surgery and then post-surgery?
1: What we do is either surgery or radiotherapy is given for curative intent. So this is given for patients who have no evidence of metastatic disease on pre-op scanning and uh, and the goal of either treatment is for cure. Occasionally if we have negative prognostic factors on the post-operative specimen we can give radiotherapy in addition to the surgery and those factors are if you've got a positive surgical margin so you haven't managed to clear the tumour. If there's seminal vesicle invasion, and these are the tubes which hang off the prostate, which hold the seminal fluid that keeps the sperm alive, we take those with it. So if there's tumour invading one of those, it's an indication to give radiotherapy as well, or if there's tumour invading the periprostatic fat. Now, what we do in practice is that even if we had one of those that was positive, we would wait until the post-operative PSA was 0.2 or more and then give the radiotherapy. And the reason for the slight delay is that there's no evidence thus far um, that giving radiotherapy when the PSA is below 0.2 is any benefit. And it, we also want to give the patient's continence time to recover because if you give the radiotherapy before their continence is recovered, it will arrest that healing process. If you're giving radiotherapy uh, with the intent of cure, then Often the patient will also have androgen deprivation therapy, which is essentially blocking testosterone production, Um, but we don't combine that with surgery. And the reason is that it's technically very difficult to do a radical prostatectomy after radiotherapy. Some people do do it, uh, but it is technically challenging.
0: Well, that's obviously the the treatment to try and prevent uh, metastases, but occasionally there will be patients who get recurrences. Um, How are metastases checked for and what's the monitoring you do after surgery and if a metastasis or a recurrence does develop, what's the treatment for it?
1: So we, after patients have a radical prostatectomy or radiotherapy, we monitor their PSA, and the PSA after radical prostatectomy should be less than zero point zero five. What I do in my practice is, for the first year, I monitor them every three months, and in the second year, every six months, and yearly thereafter. Uh, And essentially, if the PSA ever increases above 0.2, then I would arrange imaging to ensure that there was, or try and identify where the metastatic disease was, um, because that would help guide me, both the speed with which the PSA increased and also any of those uh, that imaging would guide me to whether the patient needed radiotherapy to the prostate bed versus systemic uh, therapy, which would be in the form of either androgen deprivation therapy, chemotherapy, or a combination of androgen deprivation therapy with chemotherapy. Uh, At that point, I would involve a medical oncologist. After radiotherapy, it's a little bit more tricky watching the PSA. And the reason is that the PSA does bounce somewhat and it will move around. So it won't always just be going down. It sometimes will go up and that's quite normal. So we define prostate cancer recurrence as a biochemical recurrence in these patients. So we watch their PSA get down to the nadir or the lowest value and then once the PSA has reached the lowest value, should it increase by a value of 2.0 or more than the nadir, then that's recurrent disease.
0: That brings us on to a step which we probably did pass as preoperative screening and preoperative investigations. We talked about the uh, assessment of a patient on the PSA and diagnosing uh, malignancy, but what about would you staging prior to surgery? What investigations would you do to help staging prior to it?
1: So the current standard is all patients who have a, um, a raised PSA um, prior to biopsy should be offered an MRI. And there have been several studies demonstrating that MRI uh, can help detect prostate cancer, help localise the lesion, um, and then help guide your biopsies. Now, if you do diagnose prostate cancer in someone, the standard staging is a CT, um, which can be emitted, or uh, if they've had an MRI, or a bone scan. Now, bone scan also is currently being replaced by a PSMA PET, uh, which is essentially another nuclear scan, which is more sensitive.
0: What does that stand for?
1: Oh, it's a um, prostate surface marker uh, antigen um, with a PET scan.
0: Oh, okay.
1: So it's similar to FDG PET, just more sensitive for prostate cancer. All credit to Australian researchers. Um, Australia are world leaders in this field. Certainly a lot of the the groundbreaking research in this scanning is coming out of Australia, which is fantastic.
0: It's nice to see that we're actually producing some uh, great medical knowledge. So... Other factors too, we, we talked about genetics and uh, obviously age. Uh, are there any other associations or things that actually call, can be related to cancer, like smoking? Uh,
1: smoking doesn't seem to be particularly related to prostate cancer, interestingly. Uh, it certainly increases our risk of, prostate, of uh, bladder cancer, sorry. Um, and there is an association with renal cancers that uh, doesn't seem to be particularly strong with prostate cancer.
0: Okay. Of your practice, what percentage of patients do you see is predominantly for prostate cancer compared to other conditions?
1: Uh, it, it, I, I'm a uro-oncologist, um, so I do see an awful lot of prostate cancer. Uh, I probably do about 80 radical prostatectomies a year, which is a significant number. But I also, like most urologists, I'll do general urology, which is stones, um, and we also treat the other urological malignancies such as bladder cancer, renal cancers, testicular cancers. And um, obviously the, the BPH side of things is is very prevalent as well because um, it, it's rather spiteful that the same hormone that makes our hair fall out as blokes actually makes our prostates grow. So uh, so that's the other thing that certainly affects all of us eventually.
0: Well, that's, that's good to know given that I'm boarding. And... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> so am I. <laughs> excellent. Look, it's been great having a chat to you, Dan. It's excellent and a really good pragmatic approach to the approach of prostate cancer, a very common thing. It is the most common cancer in men, is that correct?
1: Yeah, it's a, it's a terrifying statistic, um, but uh, it's certainly um, screening. So PSA testing reduces the mortality rate by 30% over a 14-year period, um, which is really, really impressive. So all of us should be screened. Um, if we have no risk factors um, from the age of fifty, and uh, and certainly it's a it's a blood test these days. It's really quite simple. And if you've ever got any concerns with your patients, please refer them. None of us mind reassuring them that everything's fine. Uh, it's a far easier conversation than than the alternative.
0: Excellent. Well, it was great speaking to you, Dan. Thank you very much for coming on Aussie Med Ed.
1: Thanks so much, Gav. Have a great
0: night. No worries. The information provided to you today is designed to complement the information provided to you in your local region and should supplement your readings and teachings in that area. Please don't take it as the only way of treating this condition or assessing a condition but really as one of of various ways of assessing these conditions. Please also be aware that the information provided today is really just general medical advice and isn't designed to actually be a source of medical information regarding your particular condition. Remember to consult your specialist or medical practitioner if you have concerns about a condition raised in this podcast. Well, thanks once again for listening to our podcast, Aussie Med Ed or the Australian Medical Education Podcast. We really enjoy hosting this podcast. I hope you find it useful to hear a pragmatic approach to everyday conditions. If you have any questions or information you want to ask about us, or you'd like to put a suggestion for a topic, please don't hesitate to email us at gavin at ed edcomau Once again, I hope you've enjoyed listening to it, and we we'll look forward to hosting it next fortnight when we introduce a new topic. Thank you.